Before we look any further into the scriptures, uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we pray your blessing upon our examination of your word. As we look again at the Beatitudes, may we see things there that we can say without a doubt, yes, that is me. It may not be to the extent we desire it to be. It may not be that we've gotten to a place where we're comfortable, Lord, because that really should never happen. But we see the fingerprints of the change that you have made in our hearts, in our lives. Father, help us to be an experiencing the blessedness that comes from being in your kingdom. Father, guide our hearts and minds now. Open our hearts to your Holy Spirit to be at work within us, even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been looking at the Beatitudes, and we're continuing to do that. And uh, today's Beatitude has a lot to do with love, although it may not seem so on the immediate surface. You see, when God's love comes to a person, it changes their DNA. And we're looking today at those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. We've looked at many of the Beatitudes. We're on number four today. And in doing that, we're looking at the change that God makes to children of his kingdom. Now, as I prayed, it may not be to the extent we should be, uh, but they are things that have been wired into us because we have become new in Christ. He's made us a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. So as we look at these, we should be able to see ourselves. And in fact, if we don't see them, if we look at them and say, well, that's not really ever been true of me, it's a good sign to do some heart inspection and say to myself, perhaps I am not a member of the kingdom of God. Even if I've been in church, even if I've done good things connected with the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have really bowed the, my heart and my knee before God and given my heart over to him. So Jesus, as he was preaching the Beatitudes on the Mount there, uh, it was kind of revolutionary to them because those that were religious couldn't necessarily see themselves in these things. So for them, it was kind of a spiritual slap in the face because they who believed they were the choicest in the kingdom really were not members of it at all. So as we've been looking at the Beatitudes, We've looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The starting block, the beginning place, to realize that there is no righteousness within me uh, that can endear me to God again, that can replace and, and give me what I once had with him. I don't have anything. I am spiritually bankrupt. And if I think something else, if I think I have an internal goodness or there's something valuable about me that will let me be into God's kingdom just because I am who I am, I will be disappointed. I have to become, come to a place where I'm poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. I don't have anything. Then we looked at blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That those that mourn over their spiritual poverty will be comforted. God will meet them, whether it's mourning over spiritual poverty, mourning over the difficulties of life. God meets us in our grief. 
And we looked at last week, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Countercultural statements of Jesus Christ. Those that are meek, those that control their strength, those that because they're spiritually bankrupt, because they mourn, change the way they deal with people. They're not such a big deal. They don't see themselves as wonderful and awesome and God's gift to the world around them. In fact, these people, we looked at one definition, said the retiring of my own will, goals, and actions to the power, wisdom, and plans of God from D.G. Rhymes. Uh, some of you are wondering who that may be. You should get some of his books. I'm telling you, he's really good. Uh, but anyway, in that particular case, there's a retirement of self. And that's what meek people do. They realize that they don't have anything to put over top of other people. They are dependent upon God, and they're just thankful when anyone blesses them because they realize if God blesses me or people bless me, it is more than I deserve at any place and time. We looked at a key verse that really showed the spirit of meekness that Jesus Christ had. Have this mind in you, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a treasure to hold on to or a right that was his, but he emptied himself and he became obedient even to the point of death, the death on a cross. We also looked at the key behind that. As a human, as he walked this earth, as he came here at Christmas and, and grew and then entered his public three-year ministry, as he did that, he did it as a human who had to depend on God. So to have this kind of meekness, we looked at uh, in Peter where it says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that key phrase, continued to entrust himself to God, is the key to meekness. That on a daily basis, I give myself to God. And we mentioned Psalm 37 as a beautiful, beautiful picture of what an entrusting person does. And we didn't take it all apart, but we did look at a couple elements. That as I entrust God and retire self, I retire my strength, my leaning on my own understanding. I embrace God's wisdom as a good, right God that knows the beginning from the end. And I can trust him with that. We also looked at retiring our passions and embracing God's goodness. Uh, the appetites that I have, the things that I want, uh, I, I embrace God's goodness so that he will give me the true desires of my heart, the things that really will satisfy me. And we also looked at committing our way to the Lord, trusting in him and he will act. And that was retired ambition where I embrace God's power that I don't have to put myself out there. I don't have to right the wrongs. I don't have to make sure somebody gets punished because of what they did to me. Uh, those things, they're gods. They belong to him. He will act on my behalf. He will make things right. And the meek person is one who has retired his strength, 
his passions, his ambitions, and said, God, you are my God. I will follow you, and whatever comes from your hand, I will take into my life as from your hand, without manipulating or complaining or trying to change situations to fit the way that I would like them to be. We resign ourselves and give ourselves joyfully to the power, goodness, wisdom of God in all things. Today we're moving on to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfaction is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful thing to think about, that, that I can truly be contented and satisfied in my life. You've probably come across some people and maybe have found it to be true yourself. Satisfaction or having a heart that's, that's content is not always easy to have. There are some folks who always think satisfaction is out there somewhere. It is getting one more thing. It's getting a particular relationship. It's having this fulfilled, having that fulfilled. It's this kind of a job. It's this sort of a paycheck. And if I get that, satisfaction will be there. Only to find out that when you get it, there's always something else. There's something else that my heart says, oh, you need to have this now, and you need to have that now. And for some, being satisfied is a race that they go through all of life pursuing, but never, ever achieving. Instead of desiring the passions of others and endeavoring to obtain them by violence or deceit, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we don't desire all these other things anymore. There's a new hunger. There's a new passion inside. Instead of coveting this world's good, I hunger and thirst for something else. It's a sincere, earnest, and continual desire for universal holiness of heart and life. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit. It's the restoration of my soul to the image of God in which I was created. There is a yearning in all of us. We look around and see this world is broken. If we're honest, we look at our own heart. Our heart, our life is broken. We're not the way we are supposed to be. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness... It's that thing that we desire above all else that will fix us, that will restore us, that will make our heart complete and new. So as we go down this path of, of hunger and thirsting for righteousness, one thing is true that self has been retired, so now I have something new to pursue. I am not going after all the things that I think I need, that this life has to offer, but now I'm going in a different direction. I have seen my poverty. I've mourned over it. I've let meekness now temper how I deal with others. You've had the question probably asked before or thought of it yourself as you get along in life. What am I going to do when I retire? Well, now that we've retired self in the kingdom of God, this is what retirees do. This is what they fill their time with. We're going to see that there's a slight change of emphasis from the first three Beatitudes, because in those, I've been looking to myself and I've been examining myself. I've been looking to see, are these things true of my heart? Uh, do I see myself as spiritually bankrupt? Do I mourn over sin? 
Am I meek then because of all of that in the way I relate to other people? Now we look at the pursuit. What is it that will fill the meek heart, the mourning heart, the heart that is um, poverty-stricken, the heart that does not have what it knows it needs? So we look for deliverance, and this is what the fourth beatitude tells us. In this, we find the answer to all of humanity. Now that may sound like a huge, big, bold proclamation to make. How in the world can one thing be an answer to the multiple problems that this world has? Well, the answer is it's God's righteousness. It's his rightness that can fix everything. And there's nothing in this world that can provide that. But if you look at the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this world believes it has all the tools that it needs in its tool belt to fix people, to make them right again to fix the brokenness of this world. And in our world, the kingdom says, well, one of the ways we can do that is raise social awareness. Let people know of this evil. And we can do that all day long. But as long as hearts are pursuing a righteousness, a rightness that doesn't include God, raising social awareness will not change the hearts of people and will not fix things. Some people say, well, just denunciate it. Every chance you get, say how wrong it is. Uh, besides raising social awareness, condemn it. Our hearts condemn us all the time. But without Jesus Christ in the equation, there is nothing to change a heart. So bringing social awareness to something, denunciating it, punishing it, legislating against it, condemning it in some fashion, that will not change the hearts of people. Sin will always be here. Hearts will always be wrong. Some say, well, shame somebody who does that. Make, make them feel shameful. But that still doesn't change the heart at a deep level, or we would have a world that was wonderful now because of, we've exercised many of these uh, techniques to restore humanity, and they've not worked. Some would say, well, fund it. Give more budget dollars to it. Send money that way, and that will fix the evil that we see around us. Some have taken a different trend, and they say, well, if this thing that's not right, let's just embrace it and accept it. And if we embrace it and say it's okay, then that will fix all of the problems around us. So instead of seeing it as a problem, as our culture may have at one time, now they say, well, make it an acceptable choice. Uh, make it just part of what someone chooses. And if they choose it, it makes them happy, then it's a good thing. And you can fill in many, many things into that category that fit that way. But all of those tools of the kingdom of this world will never fix the kingdom, will never fix this world and make people satisfied. It will really just plunge them more and more into the downward spiral of sin that Romans 1 talks about. Uh, that, that people just keep going further and further away from God. In this particular verse, it's very sobering what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said. He says, if this verse is to you, one of the most blessed statements of the whole scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations 
again. This is a big deal because it sobers us to see that if I am not a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, if I am not like that, if this verse doesn't typify me, I had better take a look at my life. I had better evaluate the foundations that I believe I'm resting on that will get me into the kingdom of God. There's a saying often when people are not feeling well that they've lost their appetite because of an illness. And then when they get better, they're like, oh, I have a appetite again. I, I can eat. And as we think about that, health is determined by appetite. And then we look at the scriptures, the scriptures, many, many places, give us instances that, that show it to be true. That if your appetite is truly for God, you have health. You have what you're supposed to have. Uh, when we talk about love at Advent time, we're talking about the love that God has for us, but, but what it is that we love. What appetites do we have and offer back to God? Uh, Beatitude number four asks, how is your appetite? Psalm 42, one and two says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's a desperation here to be part of God and, and to appear before him and have him appear before me. And, and David's here like, just I just can't wait till I can see him and be in his presence. That anticipation, that excitement, that appetite that wants God. I remember as a child, my dad worked for mobile oil and he worked in the research and development area. And they used to have this big, big Christmas um, party for all of the kids of the employees. And we'd go into this large auditorium and they'd have all kinds of Christmas celebrations and things that would be part of it. Uh, but the, the highlight for all of us as young children was at the end when this big fireplace would be shown. And there was this chimney that they had put together that a person could fit through. And it was the time for Santa to come. And when Santa would come, we would get all excited because we knew we were getting a gift. And as he would come down the chimney, he would, he would come out to the stage and he'd sit there and we'd all walk through and all get our gifts. And as he was coming, they would play special music and you knew it was the Santa music. You knew he was coming down the chimney. And all of a sudden, you'd see a foot come down or a boot, I should say. And then it would get pulled back up again. And then you would see a leg come down. And the kids would just be going crazy. It's like, ah, oh, I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to see him. And then the boot and leg would go back up the chimney again. And then you'd see a hand stick down. And the hand would come down and we'd be like, oh, my goodness. Then you'd see two boots because the hand went back up again. And eventually half a person. It probably took 10 minutes for Santa to get out of the chimney. But the whole time, every kid there, knowing the gift was coming, was getting more excited, more excited because of the appearing. And then you would see his face and he would come out and a big bag of gifts would come down and uh, it went on from there. We saw him. And that's the picture here, is that the hunger and thirsting that a believer has is to see Jesus. 
We see glimpses of him here and there, but in our heart of hearts, there's an ache, there's an excitement saying Jesus is coming again. That Jesus that came at Christmas at the first advent will return again. And when he does, I will see the object of my love. The object of my appetites will be satisfied. Psalm 63.1 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's where we live. In the things around us that could satisfy, that we would want to satisfy, they don't. There is no water in this earth save in Jesus Christ. The living water who can satisfy completely. Psalm 107, 8 and 9 says this. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. The picture of God, the God when he is longed for, when he is embraced, will satisfy the longing soul and fill the hungry soul with good things. Satan knows hearts are empty. That's why the Bible says that he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking him whom he may devour. But it also says he's transformed into an angel of light, or you could say an angel of satisfaction. Somebody that will give you something that will fill your heart. And people are wandering around all over today with appetite for God, and Satan comes in and replaces something else and says, no, no, this is it. This is what you want. And, and leads people in, in directions of appetite in all the wrong ways as that angel of light or satisfaction. God is the one who can truly satisfy the soul. Now, there's a couple implications that come about because of this as we talk about hunger and thirsting for righteousness. The first one is we are not to hunger and thirst for happiness. If happiness, that blessedness that the Beatitude speaks about, if that's the goal, we will miss it every time. We are not to hunger and thirst for happiness and pursue things as if happiness, my happiness, is the goal. It's the old saying, you're getting the cart in front of the horse. Every time we seek for happiness, before we seek for righteousness, we come up miserable. It's um, kind of like in the Karate Kid, if you remember that movie, when he uh, said to Danielson, every time you put passion before principle, even if you win, you lose. And that's the truth of the scripture here. If I want happiness, if I want my appetites to be satisfied, if that's my goal, if that's all that I am about, I will always come up miserable because happiness comes as a byproduct, not as the goal in, that I am going to pursue. When we see somebody in pain, we want to see the pain relieved. So we perhaps call a doctor or we go to a doctor ourselves and we say, I have this pain, can you ease my pain? So the doctor prescribes treatment and the pain is eased. Now the question comes up, after the pain is eased, we might say, well, what caused the pain? What is it so that that root cause can be satisfied? Um, 
Could you imagine the doctor saying, well, I really don't know what caused it, but you feel better now, so that's a good thing. The pain is gone. And we're not going to be very satisfied. In fact, we're going to probably say that's not a good doctor who just takes pain away if the symptom causing the pain isn't satisfied. See, this beatitude deals with the cause of my pain. It gives me the cure so that my pain will go away because when I hunger and thirst for the rightness that God gives, the problem of my heart is fixed. You see, the pain isn't just numbed. The pain isn't just somehow taken and, and, and taken away and given some sort of painkiller. God comes in, changes a heart, and gives them a cure so they don't have to run after all these other things to help satisfy or cover the ache within their heart. It doesn't numb them. It cures them completely. They are not happy who hunger and thirst for happiness. And there are some who go from place to place or church to church thinking that they're missing some great experience that God has to give. And if they just are in the right place and have this thing happen to them spiritually and have this experience with the Lord, they will be satisfied because they're missing something. Something's not there. This particular beatitude tells you what's missing. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of God, you will be satisfied. The scripture tells us in Matthew, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, including happiness, will be added unto you. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce pointed out something very interesting in the Greek context of this particular verse. Um, Usually, in the Beatitude, when we talk about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they, they will be satisfied. Um, it, it's in something called a genitive case. So usually when somebody asks for something, for instance, at Christmas time or Thanksgiving, we will say, please pass me the turkey. Now, all we want is some of the turkey. We don't want necessarily, at least most of us, that whole turkey to be put on our plates, and we don't want all of that turkey so that nobody else gets some. Typically, this kind of a, kind of a thing that's in this particular beatitude, when it says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, I'm sorry, blessed, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This satisfaction here that's being expressed is a different kind of construction. What, is, what it means is those that hunger and thirst for righteousness are not just asking for a little bit of a slice of righteousness, uh, a little bit of it. What it means here in the particular tense is they want it all. They want all that God has for them. They want the whole turkey, so to speak. They want a perfect and complete righteousness that fills every need of their heart, that gives them everything that they need all the time. So what the hunger here is, isn't just for a slice. This hunger here is for all of God, for all of him to take care of all of me, so that there's not a part of me that he's not involved in, that he is not filling. It's a perfect and complete, satisfying righteousness that is the goal of this beatitude. 
So when we begin to look at some aspects of righteousness, so that we know what kind of righteousness is being pursued here, there's a couple possibilities out there. One of them is an aspect of righteousness called legal or, just, or justification. All of us are condemned and guilty before God. We do not have a right standing with him. We do not have a hope of heaven whatsoever. Uh, Romans 10 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And you can look at Philippians um, chapter 3 on your own as well. Uh, but the problem of mankind is, is not that they don't have a desire for righteousness, but they want their own righteousness. They have a desire to be right on their own terms. So justification is that thing when I come to God, he declares me righteous on his terms, on his righteousness. So a child of the kingdom who comes to the cross, bows their knee, is declared righteous, even though their acts are not righteous or, or right, right within themselves. You see, we're saved because of his righteousness, not because of our own. This takes care of my guilt, my legal standing before God. This is why a person who's not perfect in this life can get to heaven because I've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is one kind of righteousness. There's another kind of righteousness the Bible speaks about, and that is social. That's where we seek, we seek to see um, uh, man liberated from the oppression that he's under. This is the idea of civil rights, judicial, uh, economic equity and integrity in business, honor in the home, honor in dealings with other people. Uh, this is when I look around and I see a broken world. It's social righteousness. I want to see people liberated from oppression. And that is a good thing. And until Jesus comes back, that will never be fully realized. But there's a certain aspect where believers in the kingdom look and see the ache of sin around them. And they desire to see that alleviated. That is why many Christians get involved in, in different social reforms. But that by itself doesn't change a person's heart. And there is a big emphasis among some today that, that Christians need to be out doing that. But in, in doing that, sometimes they've neglected the first one, bringing Jesus to their hearts. Because you can do all the social reforms that you want, but unless Jesus Christ is part of the, the um, ingredients of that and that people become aware of their sin, they can be reformed and they can be relieved from their oppression, but they'll never enter the kingdom of God. But that is one aspect of righteousness, and that's something the believers are to be involved in. Uh, but there's a bigger one, and I think that's what this beatitude is focusing on, where there's a moral, it's the righteousness of my character and my conduct, the way that I live every day. You see, as a believer, when I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I want that righteousness that Jesus had to get me forgiven. I want to see rightness out there. But the real big deal is, do I live a righteous life of my own? Is my heart pursuing Jesus Christ with a passion and a desire uh, wholeheartedly? 
In five, chapter um, 5 of Matthew, verse 20, Jesus contrasts the Pharisaic righteousness, which was all external, with what his Beatitudes are speaking of. And he's saying this righteousness of your life isn't just the facade that you put on out here. This has to go down deep inside into your heart, into your motives. Even why you do what you do needs to be for the right reasons. A couple um, ideas that this, um, this moral righteousness entails. It has the idea of being separated from a few things. Number one is I want a desire. I have to have a desire to be free from sin. That's the beginning. Sin separates people from Jesus Christ. They separate us from heaven. They separate us from God. So the beginning of this um, righteousness of character and conduct starts with a desire to be free from sin. You probably had a project before that you worked on and you kind of put it together without the instruction manual. And you stand back and you look at it and say, you know what? This doesn't look right. Something is wrong. Sin is what the instruction manual tells you is wrong. It's the problem. It's the brokenness. It's why all of us step back and look at life and say, this is not right. This is not how it's supposed to be. And God put that in our hearts. God put that deep inside so that that discontentment with what's around us would be there and that we would look to him. Uh, anytime we look around and see brokenness, it's a testimony to that there is a God who says that there is a right way. There is a right way it's supposed to be because if there wasn't that within our hearts, who, who's to say that this world is broken? You see, the fact that we even look at things and say it's broken means that there is an ideal that it's supposed to be, and that's the eternity that God has put into the hearts of every person. There's that idea, that hunger for true righteousness, true rightness that will only come through him. So my desire to be free from sin is the first part of it, that thing that separates us. But it's also a desire to be free from the bondage of sin. Uh, the hunger and thirsting for that righteousness, there's a bondage that comes about because of sin. The sin that I, I, I do today and I say, God, please forgive me, and then I go and do it tomorrow. And then I do it the day after that. And I am addicted to it. I am in bondage to it. A heart that is hunger and thirsting for righteousness uh, desires to be free from the bondage of sin, to get away from the power that drags us down. I remember as a youngster uh, swimming in the ocean, uh, in Ocean City, New Jersey. And some days there was this horrible undertow that would just pull all the sand out from under your feet and just want to pull you away. And I remember my mom always being scared of that. And what she did is, is she'd watch us and, and, and all of a sudden we'd be, be kind of going down the, the beach a little bit because we were being pulled away. The believer having a desire to be free from the bondage of sin. But it's also to be free from the desire of sin. You see, it's troubling enough to be in bondage to sin. It's even more horrible when we love it and enjoy it and really want it more than we want God. You see, in essence, a Christian is one who wants to be free from all pollution of sin. The sin penalty itself, the existence of it, the bondage that it has on my heart. And then also that desire, the part of me that even enjoys the sin. God says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who begin to hate the sin, 
who, who begin to dist, have a distaste for it in their mouth. Positively, it's a separation to wanting to live the Beatitudes completely from our hearts. It's a desire to be living the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians chapter 5. It's a desire to be living in fellowship with the Father. Jesus said, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's, God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If we have fellowship with God, sin will take a back seat. If I can go on sinning and enjoying it and become set in it and pursuing it for my hunger, God says, take a look. That is not a kingdom child. You may think you are. You may have grown up that way, but that doesn't mean anything. The proof of the pudding is in the hunger and the appetite before God. In essence, hunger and thirsting for righteousness is not ordering Jesus at a fast food window. Uh, hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, and, and getting him the way that we want him to be. It's not a try-harder self-effort pitch. We retired self in Beatitudes 1 through 3. It's a consciousness of our deep and desperate need, even to the point of pain. It's a craving that will not stop until it is satisfied. Hunger unsatisfied leads to pain. Perhaps if you've ever been around a pregnant lady with cravings, you know what happens. Until that thing is there, uh, whether it be a clementine, which we might have experienced, or other things, when the craving is there, it needs to be satisfied. And wherever the car is heading, you're going to turn around and make sure that craving gets satisfied. It's a passion that we have within us. And, and you can think perhaps you've had a passion for a position or at work, or maybe you've had a passion for a person that you love that you're separated from. Uh, all of those things are the cravings that a hunger has, and that that hunger can't be satisfied until that thing arrives. Hosea said of Israel's repentance, he, he described it as a mourning cloud. In other words, it was a repentance that came for a little while, and poof, it was gone. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have a desire for God that's not satisfied until we have him. Sin has to be gone. Uh, J.N. Darby said it this way, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in the heart of God towards me. When the prodigal was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The satisfaction that comes through righteousness is threefold. It's a righteousness that is immediate and available. If you're living in guilt and brokenness today, take heart. At Christmas, the best gift that you can receive is the love of God. It's immediate, it's available for your heart to fill you from the inside out. Whatever appetite you've had up until this point has left you hungry. There is an appetite for God and his rightness 
that can change you from the inside out. This is becoming clothed in his righteousness, that we've abandoned all our other pursuits and we're looking to God and God alone to make my heart full. There's also a righteousness to hunger and thirst for that is active and transforming, that can help you in the bondage of sin that you're in. There is a righteousness as I hunger and thirst for God above all else. There's a satisfaction that comes because I can become conformed to his righteousness. There is a power to break your addiction. There is a power that can help you get rid of that sin that you think has become part of you. That is part of the satisfaction. That's why that person can be blessed, can be envied. That position is because Jesus comes and he liberates, sets the captive free. And there's a righteousness yet coming that is promised and eternal. And this is when we are changed into his righteousness. You see, the satisfaction that Jesus gives is from beginning to end. It gets rid of my guilt. It gets rid of my bondage. And one day, it will get rid of every stain every tear, everything that was broken is going to be fixed. It's going to be made whole again. 1 Corinthians 2 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That's what God's righteousness is. It's that time where we enter in and become joint heirs with Jesus Christ in the heavenly kingdom. God gets rid of guilt. He breaks bondage. He breaks chains. He gives us a hope that all that is broken will be fixed, and we will participate in that. David said, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. You see, that's the hunger and thirsting of a child of the kingdom of God. There's a desire and a passion in them to have God's rightness guide their life. That there is nothing else that I seek. I want Jesus. I want him. That's the DNA of the kingdom child. Is that your DNA? Is that something that you have embraced and you can lay your heart and life over top of it and say, yeah, that's me. I want Jesus. For some of us, we may be children of the kingdom and have wandered a little bit. Make this Christmas the time where you give yourself as a gift to God once again. You see, Christmas love, as we celebrate at this fourth Sunday of Advent, is God giving us the gift of satisfying righteousness. The gift I give to him is my pursuit and hunger for what he's already given. My appetites are in any other direction. I will never be happy. I will only be miserable. My prayer for our congregation for this Christmas and for anybody listening is that you will be a child of the kingdom who hungers and thirsts for the rightness of heart that only comes through the babe of Bethlehem, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us this day to be um, 
truly hungering and thirsting for the satisfaction that righteousness brings. Father, if we're wandering, bring us back. If we've never entered your kingdom, if we've been searching for other things, other places, other ways, may we be humbled this morning. May we come to Jesus Christ, acknowledge sin, and take the righteousness that you will clothe us in. Father, we love you. May this Christmas time be one where we just relish your love and show it back by our appetites for your rightness. In Jesus' name.